Gregory Mosier sat down with moderator Porter Van Zandt for a one-on-one interview in May of 1988. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Good afternoon. We're here with Greg Mosier. And uh, I'm Porter Van Zandt, for those of you that don't know. Um, we're going to be talking to Mr. Mosier about his directing of the Mammoth plays and also about artistic direction at the Lincoln Center. Um, I thought we'd start first with the directing David's plays. Um, how how long ago did you meet? Where did, and where did you meet? In Chicago? Or? Yeah, David, uh, in 74, a bunch of interesting things happened in Chicago. Uh, after years of being a city in which there was the Goodman, which had been there since 1925, and a lot of road shows, and a few interesting smaller companies, suddenly between 74 and 76, about 25 theater companies um, sort of sprang up. <coughs> Steppenwolf guys were still in high school then. Um, but those old farts were uh, trying to start up these theater companies, the Victory Gardens, the Organic. And David, who had been in school in Goddard, Vermont, grown up in Chicago, brought his company, the St. Nicholas Theater Company, back to Chicago. And sometimes they did his plays, and sometimes they didn't do his plays. And uh, although he had no national reputation, he had quite a Chicago reputation because of sexual perversity in Chicago. The play that The Organic had done with David Rashi. And if anybody knows, it was not directed by Stuart Gordon. And uh, he brought me American Buffalo. And we've both told the story so many times, I'm sure we're just lying now. But my memory of it is that he said uh, that uh, Goodman should do this play and it would win the Pulitzer Prize. And he would put $5,000 in escrow, and if it didn't win the Pulitzer Prize, we could keep the money. Um, We did do the play, and I had the great fortune uh, to direct it. I had gone there to work for uh, Bill Woodman, who had been a teacher of mine at Juilliard, and uh, uh, one of my jobs was to... uh, administer the newly formed second company at the Goodman, and I, I can't tell you how generous and gracious Bill was during all of that time, and he certainly could have grabbed his play for himself, and he chosen to, and he very generously suggested that I direct it, and I was okay with David. And since then, we've done 12 projects. Twelve. Goodness. So, and I'm going to get it right someday, I think. Did he put that $5,000 in escrow? No, he didn't. Well, anyway, well, and how how do you work on a script together? Is that changed over the years? Well, we kept we have this model, you know, in our imaginations about Ilya Kazan and you know and Stanislavski and all those things. But every time we would try and have a production meeting, we would just end up talking about women. So they never went anywhere to the production meeting. And truly, I mean, we would have try and have them at William Morris or something. And so we've never really had a sort of production meeting. He would give me the script. They're usually finished when he gives them to me. Um, uh, Speed the Plow actually wasn't finished, and we knew that it wasn't finished. 
and we sort of took a chance with that before mm-hmm. that needed work, and we can talk about that later if you want. So then I just spent a couple months trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. and according to very basic sort of Stanislavskian principles, what's the through line of the play, what's the action of each scene, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and when I don't feel too embarrassed, or I feel reasonably sure I won't make a complete fool out of myself, I go back and I say, this is the through line of the play, right? And uh, he thinks for a while, and he says no, and uh, or yes, as the case may be. And then on we go, and uh, and that's that. Um, sometimes he has been at every rehearsal. Uh, he was there, I think, every day for Glenn Carey. Uh, Edmund, he was not there until I think the final dress rehearsal, and Lindsay was uh, of Lindsay and Pratt. Uh, <clears throat> was uh, pregnant at the time and they saw a dress rehearsal and never saw the play again until it came to New York. Uh, hmm. So there's a real range. Speed the Plow, he was here maybe once every 10 days. And, uh, but we I mean, I, I just think the director's job is to serve the intentions of the play as simply as, as you can. So we've rarely had, I mean, he has said, I think that's decorative or I think that's an interesting moment, but it doesn't have anything to do with the, product, with the play. Or I think you've not explored this moment as well as you might. Um, he's a pretty good director, David, and uh, he's very, very good at talking to directors. So I, I listen to him. And, uh, do you have much? From what you've said, you don't have a great deal of influence when the script is being written. So you read no zero, script. zero. With one exception, a life in the theater, which was. Uh, about a 40-page sketch, really. It ended up being a 70-minute play, which sounds short, but the running time of, uh, of Speed the Plow, I don't, I think, is 81 minutes. So he, you know, he writes short anyway. And that was a play that uh, um, was a... Do you all know this play, like in the theater? Well, originally, those scenes were set all over Chicago in a coffee shop, in a gymnasium, on the street at another theater. So I suggested to David that we set them all in one theater and the coffee shop scene be in the dressing room and they're having Chinese food. Um, and, uh, and then I asked him if we could reorder several of the scenes because you could almost deal them out randomly. It occurred to me that there was a sort of implied build if you dealt the cards in a certain way. And, uh, and that's the only time I've ever really been involved, and I and I pushed very hard for a, sort of interesting about David's anecdote. Um, the older actor never had a moment alone on stage. The original cast of that show, by the way, was Mike Nussbaum, who you may know from Glengarry, and Joey Mantegna was playing the younger actor. That was the first time I worked with Joey. And uh, so Joe had his moment alone on stage doing the Henry V monologue, but the older actor never had a moment. So I kept saying, come on, you got it. I mean, you got to get the guy's dying, you know, you have to give him a moment. And we had this, we had invented this convention, you know, of the facing out in the dressing room and looking into the mirror. Not invented it in the theater, but utilized this convention for this production. And I always imagined it, and I think suggested to David that it would be a scene alone in the dressing room, and he would be looking in his mirror and saying, you know, you really aren't a very good actor, you're kind of a tire of the old hack, and uh, you should really hang it up and make room for the younger generation. David kept saying, yeah, 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 yeah. And about three days before we opened, but we only had three weeks from the first performance opening night, 
at stage two, he said, uh, I got it, I got it. And he had written about eight lines, and there was no stage direction. It just said, Robert alone. Um, thank you, thank you. I'd like to thank you all for this magnificent... You know, it's moments like these when we come together in the theater to be thanked. Well, it's just... And then Joe came out and said, in perfect iambic pentameter, they're locking up, they'd like us all to leave. And Robert's Tony acceptance speech has been, un has been interrupted. So, of course, I knew immediately that rather than facing downstage, it had to be played all the way upstage, facing away towards the imaginary audience, you know, that they had played all the plays to. And it was just fucking great. I mean, it was wonderful. And uh, so that's David, you know. I mean, he's... Yeah, but he took, took your idea and then... Made yeah, but he made it in made the theater. It I mean, I had a sort of hack idea. Yeah. And, he, and, yeah. he, and he did something that was... Yeah, like very good. Playwriting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, anybody could have said the guy needs a moment alone on stage, but he did it. Um, but, you know, Speed the Plow is a very... Have you seen Speed the Plow? Guys, any of you? So, well, it's a strange play. It's a wonderful play, but it's a strange play. And David's worked very hard not to make it a melodrama. That is to make uh, 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 Ronnie Silver, Charlie Fox, uh, uh, the bad guy, and Joey, the, the sort of confused guy, and uh, Madonna, the angel. And that's the way it would seem to play down, so that the devil fights it out with the angel, and the raisonneur of the play has to stay, uh, has to make a decision between those things. So that would make it a melodrama, and I love melodrama, but that's not what I wanted to write. And I wanted to create ambiguity with each of these characters. And I think he's done a very clever, more than clever, brilliant thing in getting the audience to ask the same question that the protagonist is asking, and really ask it, which is, who is this girl? Now, I've either helped or hurt the situation by casting a very famous person. I don't know which, but I cast her, and that's done now. Um, but I think even when she leaves, the question will remain the same. Is she ripping the guy off, or isn't she ripping the guy off? Is she an angel, or is she a manipulator? And that's a very, very difficult thing to do in a theater. And people would call me up during previews and say, it's not clear who the girl is. You, you know, it's just I, I, I have to talk to you about this. You have to find her. And I say, hey, you're, that's the play, Jack. And everybody says they want to write that play where it's not clear. But people, I found, were obsessed with this. They would call me a week later and say, it's not clear who Karen is. Well, just like life. I mean, it becomes a television show if you know who Karen is. I say this in terms of directing because it took enormous... Uh, every bit of trust I could muster to not want to simplify that situation, yeah. to make it clear to the audience who Karen was. I don't know if any of you have read the Kazan book uh, that was just published, but they talk about being out of town with uh, uh, Streetcar. Kazan totally sympathized with Flash. I mean, if we can all kind of imagine doing the original production of Streetcar, which is beyond me. But there they were, and no audience had seen this play yet. And they had their own expectations of who Blanche was, and who Stanley was, and so on, and the characters. And uh, the audience, uh, on the first performance, laughed at Blanche through the play. And uh, you know, 
Daniel Dunbar at Tennessee Talk, who since often said that he thinks the funniest line in that play is I've always depended on the hands of strangers. But Stanley would go to hand her the, the ticket, say, I got a birthday present for you, Blanche, it's a bus ticket back home. Ha, 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 they would all go. And Kazan was understandably horrified after building a production around this moth, this delicate, aesthetic creature. And he came to, to, to Tennessee and said, what do we do? What do we, I mean, what do we do? And Tennessee said, well, what do you mean, what do we do? And he said, uh, <laughs> he said Tennessee, they're laughing. He said, yeah, I like it. And uh, it's kind of the way I felt when we did Speed the Plow. I mean, it, it didn't occur to me, I must say. I mean, I realized the comic side of her character. It did not occur to me that they would laugh at, at the most serious moments in the play. And uh, there was a moment when I thought, well, this is just wrong. And now I've come to accept it. Not that the audience turns on that, although I think a lot of the audience does, but that sometimes it's 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 mysterious and i think that happens with great writers and the impulse to make it understandable is what turns it into a comic book rather than a great painting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um now what about his the casting of things does he uh, does he ever write with specific actors in yeah a lot we, it's been a long time since we've auditioned um uh, this play was written for Joe and Ron, and as you've all read about David, he's a very loyal man, and uh, he, he not only writes for people, he, even when he hasn't had someone in mind when he's writing, he'll always use his friends rather than branch out. So I've found that one of my jobs with David is, of course, to support his impulses, but slowly to bring other people into his, his, his family to know. <coughs> Yeah, to introduce him to new people, um, who then often will become members of uh, the non-repertory company. Uh -huh. And does uh, in in rehearsal does he uh, allow them to uh, have input into uh, things? Does he go? Uh, he gets bored really fast. Uh, uh, and so do I, but I listen. Yeah. And he tends to shut it up. Yeah. I mean, he's just. But I think the place is so clear to David when he writes yeah. them that it, he forgets sometimes how extraordinarily confusing they are to the actors mm -hmm. or to someone who doesn't know David. No question of the place of the book in, in uh, *Speed the Plow*. I mean, I happen to know that he believes every word in that book. I also happen to know that he's doing a very intricate thing in terms of the style of that book, but. Those are things that actors need to talk out sometimes. If it takes 15 minutes, it takes 15 minutes. But for David, it's called, what's the action of a scene? Let's practice the action of a scene. What are you doing here? You're pitching a movie? Then pitch the goddamn movie. Don't, anything else is for the audience. Stop worrying about it. So, and it's not to say that he doesn't, he, he's saying shut up and say the lines. He understands very well that there is a craft to acting. But for him, the craft of acting doesn't, Involve a, you know, an analysis of the text from an audience's point of view, which just involves an analysis, analysis, analysis of the text from the actor's point of view. What are the given circumstances? What's the action? Well, he was an actor too. Yeah. Kind Kind. Well, I mean, he may not. As he'd be the first to tell you. But I mean, he has done. Yes, he has acted and he has directed a lot. 
and he's been working very hard with a group called the Atlantic Theatre Company, but it's mm -hmm. now become the Atlantic Theatre Company that is doing boys like the Lincoln Center right now, and gave a series of lectures about four years ago about his thoughts about acting, and uh, and they're terrific. They're sort of they're very much based on the late Stanislavski. You all know this book. Uh, uh, Stanislavski rehearses the final years by an actor named Tukorkov. Great. So that's sort of the technique that we've been using on these plays. Do you look for specific kinds of actors for David Mamet shows, or do you use actors for other shows? Well, most of the shows I've directed have been David. Probably half the plays I've directed have been just. And so we tend to hang with the with the same group. It's interesting who can do it and who can't. And you know it in 30 seconds in an idea. I mean, the rhythms of his lines. I mean, and, and the, uh, yes, it does call for just a lot of verbal facility, but it also takes an actor whose impulse is to get on with it. Yes. Because the minute you break, there's a line in Buffalo, you know. And, but all I ever ask, and I would say this to her face, is not to go around with her group. But all I ever asked, and I would say this to her face, is not to go around and her Gracie either with this attitude, the past is past, and now is now, and so fuck you. That's a line of teachers very early in the play. And it's like 17 IMs in a row. And you can scan it up, but all I ever ask, and I would say this to her face, is not to go around with her Gracie either with this attitude, the past is past, and now is now, and so fuck you. And it's great, because the, <laughs> the fuck is on the, on the upbeat, you know, so it's very nice. <laughs> And I'm not saying he counts these things, although David has occasionally been seen rewriting plays in the Mecca Theater going. And he does count them when he rewrites them because they have to fit into the rhythm of the scene. Uh, I think they just flow out intuitively. But if you break that down and you start saying, but all I ever ask, and I'd say this uh, uh, to a face, not to go around with her, a Gracie, that with this attitude, the past is past. Now is now, and so uh, fuck you. It just obviously is not as interesting as the first way. But you can't just recite it like it's a, you know, what is that class called in college? I can't remember. It's not drama class. Public, not public speech. Yeah, elocution or oral interpretation. Thank you very much. You know, if it's just oral interp, you're dead. You know, and so what you need is an action that is very simple, very playable, and very strong. Now, the action can be as simple, simple as something like uh, hearing someone out. At the opening speech, the opening scene of Glengarry Glen Ross, the artwork salesman is going, John, 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 okay, now John, look, the Glengarry Islands lead, you send him Rome out, fine, he's a good man, I'm not saying he's a good man, I'm not saying he's not, but blah, 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 blah. And J.P. Walsh had to sit there like this, and it was very hard for him to play that action he wanted to choose, which was to hear someone out. He wanted to do intuitively something like to put Shelley in his place or to bust his balls or to get out of there for the next meeting. And the slightest eye-rolling on the part of JT or sighing or anything just made the scene go dead right away. So every night he sat there and it almost drove him crazy. He sat there, I must say. He would sit there and listen to a very powerful actor with his face a foot and a half away in an 800-seat theater spew invective at him. John, you asshole, you scumbag, you blah, 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 blah. 
and that's JT hearing him out. You know, with no behavior, no coffee cups, no Chinese food on the table, because all of those things have been taken away from the actors. And that truly made them crazy. Because as you all know, actors are much happier when they can be doing this all the time. So he just had to sit and whistle. And then at the end of that scene, he got out two $5 bills. And it was great. There's 800 people who lived at those two $5 bills. It was pretty nice. Ooh. So, what about uh, designers? Do you... I've worked with the same guys pretty much since uh, American Buffalo and Life in the Theater. Michael Merritt has been designing, really, I think, everything of David's that I've directed. Uh, we just try and get it back to nothing, basically. If we're in a theater that is very interesting architecturally, we'll usually just do it on a bare stage. Uh, Glenn Gary was an exception. And uh, I think that scenery is stupid for the most part and uh, just distracting from, you know, if you've got a poet, as David is, and North American writers are, what's, what's the point, really? It just tells you something you don't already know, you know? I mean, we, 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 they always start big and get stripped down. Mm-hmm. So Michael and I, the set for uh, Speed of Fire, if you don't know, is just some, it looks like a dance concert, except that there's Mexican tile on the floor, but there's masking velvet, you know, big floor drapes hanging all the way back, and then a sort of scrim in the back, and all of this is this sort of dusty rose, and a lot of side lighting, like in a dance concert. And, uh, but, you know, we thought about an entire wall of television monitors. We thought about a huge picture window in the background that would either have something specific, recognizable, or would be used as a, as a scrim. Uh, we thought about plants. We thought about uh, all kinds of things. But all they told you was that they were in Hollywood. Well, you know they're in Hollywood after the first three lines, even if you didn't know it going in. Mm-hmm. So, as I don't, the play is not about Hollywood, I didn't see anything. So I, part of this is just the astounding lack of visual imagination on my part. Um, and, uh, uh, well, but it seems to work. Yeah. I don't know what to... Well, in the last meeting we had, it was about Shakespeare and how Shakespeare does always set the scene. And yeah, sure. Or Moliere. I mean, what is it? It's a floor and a couple screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just really not necessary. It's that experience we all have to play works in the final dra- final run-through in the rehearsal room. Mm-hmm. And it's all there and it's happening and, you know, you're doing Miss Julie and you don't have the bird and you have some stupid little block of wood or a towel or a something and that's the bird and Jean kills the bird, you know, just by slapping the table. It's absolutely credible and horrifying and poetic. And then you go and you have the bird and the blood splatters all over the place. And the moment never works again. Mm-hmm. And I just swore to myself in college I, would, I wouldn't make that mistake again. Mm-hmm. That uh, I just, unless it was distracting to, to, to make it that abstract, uh, I wasn't just going to worry about that stuff. Because I think all you can think is, God, how did they get the blood to come out of the bird? Well, part of the, uh, the design elements you think are the most important costume? Yeah, I think costumes and, and then, you know, and then props become very, very important. Um, and Speed the Plow, we, we decided not to dress them in, as we made every effort not to dress them in a sleazy way, for instance. Uh, 
So I imagine there would be a lot of productions of Speed the Plow where the guys are in white shoes, you know, and uh, huge pinky rings and lots of gold chains. And uh, But for us, you know, we didn't want the audience to look down on, on these men. So we put, the, you know, we dressed them in the most expensive Italian designer and tasteful designer clothes that we could find. I mean, Joey's wearing like a $400 Matsuda shirt, you know, $1,500 jacket. Oh. And you know what expensive clothes are like now. They're the least formal thing in the world, right? I mean, it's just kind of unstructured jacket. And he's wearing 1595, you know, tennis shoes, right? Oh. Um, things that you could imagine yourself wearing if you could only afford them. Uh, but you never got a, a sort of cheap shot. And the exception was is that I wasn't going to let the guy smoke cigars, but Ron decided he smoked cigars naturally and he was smoking them in rehearsals. And he looked so great smoking them that even though it's a producerly thing to do, I said, that's good, just do it. And it's great. It's become wonderful because it's not what. So that you would then go with costume first, then props, and yeah. enough light, of course, to be seen. Yeah, I think the thing for me, things are, are always very real. The clothes, if you're wearing it or touching it, it's real. And the further away it gets from your physical contact with it, like floors are always kind of, you know, necessary. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, no, I, I understand. They're real. You got to walk on it. So I tend not to to. to a lot of treatments with them or anything. But then I, you know, I'm always trying to get the theater to look like the rehearsal room, which we're going to hold. Now, what about the rehearsals? David is not there then very much. No, I, I think the exception is when he's there. I love having him around. What about rewrites? Do you ask him whenever? Yeah, sure. <coughs> he sees them before I do. Very rare. And uh, he's good about cuts. You know, I'll say this is, I think this is redundant. And uh, he almost always agrees. I've never had an insistent cut. But I, I got to tell you, I mean, he is so much better at this than I am that my job is usually catching up with him and figuring out what it is that he's trying to do and then say, well, wouldn't this make it more like what you were trying to do rather than change what he's trying to do? And uh, for right or wrong, that's just the way it's come down and it's made me very happy. Have you ever had fire an actor or has he ever asked you to He's, play for He asked me to once and I didn't. Not because I didn't think the guy should be fired, but I thought it was too close to the opening and it set up a panic in the rest of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, I fired up. I fired an actor on New Year's Eve. I mean on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it has to be done. A great actor, too. I mean, a really magnificent actor who just wasn't happy playing his part. I mean, bitterly unhappy. And it obviously wasn't going to work, and he had to go where I had to go. Yeah. And I adored him, and I would work with him in a second, although I doubt he would work with me. Understandably. I mean, there's no reason he should ever work with me again. Not that it was my fault, particularly. It was just an awful situation. Yeah, sometimes you got to do it. You're wrong. It doesn't. I've never fired an actor because I thought he couldn't cut it. You know, he, he or she wasn't talented enough. It was just sometimes the chemistry was chemistry. Does David get in much on casting, or does he? Oh yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I think it's very important that he that I I wouldn't understand the point of casting an actor he didn't approve of. 
Let me ask you about the casting of Madonna. Was that done because you thought this woman and <coughs> the baggage that she brings with her is going to help in that role? Well, or were you thinking as a producer that... No, I wasn't thinking as a producer. Not at all. I mean, no, you can't not think as a producer if you are, but uh, I... Uh, a very talented young woman named Elizabeth Perkins, uh, also a longtime associate, was to play this part. And she withdrew in November after having been committed for about seven months. And um, I was hurt, uh, but it was okay. And uh, I decided to have auditions because there's so many talented young women in the state. And auditioned uh, about 30 people. And uh, a couple of days into that process, I got a call from Madonna, who I knew from doing another show. And uh, she said, can I read? And uh, I knew then what I continue to know now, which is that she's a very serious person. And, uh, and I know that she's great at my heart, David. So she auditioned, and she was the best. And, uh, and that was kind of strange. But there we were. So I thought, well, now you're going to trust the audition process, or aren't you going to trust the audition process? So I talked to Joey, and he said, well, the only thing worse than hiring her because she's Madonna would be not hiring her because she's Madonna. Mm-hmm. You know, if she really gave the best audition. So then she came in and read for me and Dave, and there was no question. She was great. There was a question of whether she could fill an 800-seat theater with uh, no liking uh, um, of any sort, because David and I are... Uh, completely opposed to my thing we won't do it. He's written it into his contract, as a matter of fact, that should be. So, uh, so we cast her, and there we were. And uh, I'll tell you, if you're interested, what the, what the proof of the pudding was is at the end of the play, she is turned on by, by uh, both men at one moment, and uh, the most vicious, hateful, uh, filthy, uh, diatribe. I mean, have you ever seen anyone be meaner to anyone outside of a Shakespeare play than in, in that five minutes? Mm-hmm. And these wonderfully talented people would come in and Ronnie did the callbacks and they would stand there and I'd say, well, you're not a good guy, right? So yeah, i got to stand up there. And the scene would start and the tears would start to come and then it would start to back up. And then they'd say, thanks, good, 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 good. Look, he's a very powerful guy, but you've got to stand your ground. And that begins with physically standing your ground. And just don't cry. I didn't catch you I I just wanted her to try not to cry. And I swear to God, Madonna was the only person who could just stand there with this look on her face of, well, when you're finished, I'll say what I have to say. And she is, I mean, essentially an angel in the play, Karen. She does deliver the truth. But as usually happens with angels, whether they're famous angels like Joan of Arc or minor angels like Take Your Pick, uh, the truth seems somewhat ludicrous in the context of contemporary life. Um, Sure, you're hearing voices and you're going to liberate friends. Um, And uh, what we found was that just as to play a crook like the guy in Glengarry or uh, a high-powered, cynical man like the man in uh, 
in many ways, same thing, not always, of course, in the play where you don't have any point in uh, Speed the Plow, that you've got to cast Joe Mantegna, whose heart is about the size of Indiana. I mean, he is the most loving, generous, gentle, sweet person I have met in my life. I mean, he is a total match. And, uh, and that's what allows him to play these scumbags like Ricky Roma. It keeps it three-dimensional. And it was Madonna's kind of toughness that allowed her to play an angel and not turn into a sap. And uh, so I thought that was very important because you're always looking for that thing that shores it up. You know, it's the oldest thing in the world. The miser doesn't think he's a miser. The miser thinks he's a sensible man. So that's, well, that's how that happens. Well, as long as we got into producing there, let's talk a little bit about then uh, artistic directing. What, uh, when did you get off into that? When you were in Chicago? Was that out of necessity, um, or is it something that you wanted to do? I mean, as a director, were you finding that in order to have a have a base to be directing in, that yeah, I guess. Going I, I mean, you got to take this the right way. I've just always known how to produce. I'm not a very. I don't think I'm a very good director. I think I'm an okay director, you know. But I don't. Think I'm great shakes as a director. I'm trying to learn how to do it better. But producing has always... We'll keep it quiet. <laughs> Somehow it's sort of... I just... I don't know. So putting people together is, is just something that was easy for me to do. Boy. So I, I've, I've just always been doing it. And I, I sort of did it in high school, except in music, not in theater. And uh, plus, it, you know, the, the, the great obvious pleasure of producing is that you get a lot of action. There are always a lot of people in the theater. And I, in one season, you can't direct the new Arthur Miller play, the new Wally Shoyanka play, the new Tennessee Williams play, the new David Mamet play, and the new John Ware play. And you can't do it. You can't do that in three seasons. But you can produce all those plays. Mm-hmm. You can have all those guys bumping into each other in the hallways. And you can introduce a group of 200 actors over the course of a season to a group of playwrights and directors and have all of that happening. I mean, I just treasure so much this whole thing that's happened with Serafina this year. And sort of by definition, I couldn't have directed Serafina. So I, I love it, but I, I have very simple feelings about it, uh, which is that uh, the institution is no more than what happens at 8 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And my opening remarks as a producer to any company that worked at the Goodman or is working at Lincoln Center is, you're not here to fit into our organization. We're here to support what you're doing. So don't change anything. Just do what you do. And that's hard on staff. It's not so hard for me, but it's tough on the business people and the general manager and the press director and the advertising people because clearly Bongeni and Gema take something different than Mike Nichols, who's about to direct Waiting for Godot, who takes something different than Jerry Sachs, who takes something different than Bill Macy, who just directed his third play, just the director of Boy's Life. Um, and, um, and so I gradually learned that that is the success, that's the measure of success in organization, is the degree to which Bongani can pursue what Bongani chooses to pursue. And that there is no such thing as a Lincoln Center play, that God save as a Lincoln Center style. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I think this wouldn't be true if the leader of the organization were uh, Stanislavski or George Balanchine or Jerome Robbins or something like that. But when you think about the early years of, of, of Lincoln Center Theater, when Kazan and Whitehead were the, the heads of this theater, I mean, these guys were giants and, uh, and still are, but I mean, they were really cooking in the early 60s. And, uh, and I think that what was very, what was the, the fatal mistake in, in Mr. Rockefeller's and the other people involved in the board of Lincoln Center was to subtly or, or brazenly, I don't know which, communicate that the Lincoln Center Theater somehow existed in some blueprint in the sky and it was their job to do it. And if we think about what might have happened had they had the courage to say, hey, look, I'm furious at Kazan. I mean, just do it. We don't care whether you do Jacobean tragedies or the new Tennessee Williams play. You spend every waking moment of your life thinking about the kind of theater that you care about. You're here to do what you want to do. And Kazan might well have wanted to do a Jacobean tragedy. But it takes all the fun out of it when you're doing it because you think that's what David Rockefeller or John Lindsay, who was present chairman of the board, uh, wants. It has to be your idea. And uh, I must say that Lindsay and the rest of this board now understands that so clearly and support it so enthusiastically. Um, and they realize that there is no institution, that there is no decision that can be made for the institution that isn't a decision for the play. And whenever you seem to be in a conflict about it's good for the play but not good for the theater or vice versa, just go with what's good for the play. If it's good for the play, it will by definition be good for the institution. And that's hard. That's really um, hard. Have there, have there been any great differences between uh, the Goodman and uh, the Consider? Well, the biggest, of course, is that we're not stuck with that destroyer of the American theater subscription. Um, and I, I mean, I just, it is death subscription. I, I, Dan Newman is a very good friend, um, but he's just wrong. Um, people don't, I don't think people come to theaters to support theaters. People come to theaters to see plays. Am I wrong about this? You're agreeing or disagreeing? I'm agreeing. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all in agreement if we think about it for 10 seconds. And yet, how do we get the audiences for all of our theaters all across the country? This is less true in New York, but every quote-unquote regional theater in this country virtually has a subscription. So it means you intimidate them into getting the, seeing the new Howard Quarter play so that they can see Guys and Dolls or Romeo and Juliet. Nothing wrong with Guys and Dolls or Romeo and Juliet. They're great play. But they don't want to see the goddamn Howard Quarter play, and they resent it when they come. To me, there's no more disheartening phrase than the, the one uttered when people are having their tickets chopped as they walk into a theater and one of them turns to the other and says, what are we seeing tonight, honey? And it just makes your blood run cold. So we abandoned that. And the good thing about subscription, of course, but it's good for the institution, not good for the play, is that you get those millions of dollars up front because everybody's giving you $60 per subscription and you get all that money in the spring and you bank it and you, you know, it's yours. So we went to this thing called membership. Do you all know about this? 
week, you join the theater for $25. I can do this in one sentence. And you're a member for 365 days from the day you join. You don't have to get in sync with the season or anything. And in the year that you're a member, you can see any play we do, any night of the week, best available seat for $10. And I just thought that was better. So if you want to come see Speed the Plow, come see Speed the Plow. If you think Bama is a foul-mouthed guy, then don't come see Speed the Plow. You want to see Anything Goes? Come see Anything Goes for 10 bucks. If you think musical comedy is stupid, then you don't have to come see it. Uh, well, that membership, that $25 is a membership fee that you pay for that privilege. That yeah, you just pay it for the privilege. And how far ahead do you have to get your ticket? You don't have to get your ticket ahead at all. You can, where the tickets go on sale to members before they go on sale to the general public. But you can come up on a Thursday night. If we got a ticket, we'll sell it to you. If we got it in the fifth row center, we'll sell it to you. Did you do that in Goodman? No, I begged them no. to do it. They wouldn't do it. They were quite well, because as you know, well, you know, when they got going on that uh, subscription back in the sixties, and they were pushing it. So. Well, I think it was a sort of brilliant idea. If you, when you know, well, it was the, probably needed at that. Yeah, time. in the forties and fifties, and you know, all of a sudden the economy was changing, and people. Anything about the whole sense of America and the. In the 50s, it was plan ahead. It was move to the suburbs. It was get a mortgage, uh, buy the Encyclopedia Britannica for your kids, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, invest in the future. And so subscription, a kind of, I'll give you my $60 now and I'll have my cultural life organized for the year, it just fit into the, the subconscious of the culture. I can't imagine that it's anything less into the subconscious of New York is, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing next October 10th. I mean, do you, do you even know what you're doing next week? You're not going to buy a ticket. Yes, there is, but I think there are half a dozen cities around this country that will support it. Well, I think that... Sorry, I didn't mean... No, but in the, in, of course, in those days, going back to the 60s, we had to, uh, as quote, perspective on quote, and the uh, opera and the uh, orchestra and all of that. Well, I think there was also a monetary problem, too, that they thought that this would solve, and that's enough. You brought up and I think it did, but I think now it's time to abandon it. Oh. Because, um, you know, what do you do if, uh, you know, you're trying to do the Last Supper and, uh, you know, St. Peter just suddenly isn't available until a week later than after you thought he was available? You know, mm-hmm. then, you know, you get Ron Silver instead of St. Peter. And Ron Silver's a great actor, but, you know, it'd be nice to do it with the cast you intended to do mm-hmm. it with. And, uh, and the whole idea that you you can't you have to do this within reason. Bernie's we had a lot of slogans at the theater. Bernie's is chaos within reason. And um, you know, so we'll move a play a week. We moved the opening uh, performance of uh, of uh, the House of Blue Leaves three different times. Not because the show wasn't going well, but because of Jerry's availability and then because of Tony Walton's availability and then because of one of the actors available. Well, now, uh, with that policy, have you ever had any show that you had, you had closed earlier than you anticipated? Yes. Yes, we have. And I think there's no shame in that. I think if, sh- if you run out of audience because something didn't work, you always have the choice. You can say, we believe in this show and we'll do it even if only no. there's a half a house every night. Because it's worth it to have those 450 people see the play. And we'll just lose a little more money than we intended to lose. Or you can say, you know what? This show doesn't work. And we tried, and it was a good play, but we did something wrong. Let's let it go and go on to the next one. That is one. the problem when you've got a subscription, because then you have to go on for the next five weeks. 
take care of all those subscribers for eight weeks or however long your subscription is. Let me ask you about the fiscal problems that you found at Lincoln Center. They, you didn't seem to find any. Well, it's a it's a tricky theater, but I but I think that this, this is a very simple key to it, which is get out in the middle of the house, as you've all discovered. You know, and uh, I I saw a fair number of the plays that Plow uh, and Irving did. Uh, not all of them, and I saw none before that. Uh, and I didn't see any of Richmond's plays, uh, but. Uh, uh, I did see Carmen, and if you saw Carmen, you'll remember that Brooke pushed that stage out about 10 feet further than anybody had pushed it out. And he really got out into the middle of the house, and every show, except the front page, every show we have done has been on the common ground plan. Oh. And it's the only thing I've insisted on. Oh. I said, I don't care what the set looks like, but this is going to be the ground floor. Yeah. Now I don't have to twist anybody's arm anymore. They realize it. Mm-hmm. And for Death in the King's Horseman, it was a square. And for Comedy of Errors, it was a circle. And for uh, mm-hmm. uh, Anything Goes, it's a circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony Walton flattened it out and widened it for front page and immediately realized that he had made a mistake. Oh. Um, yeah. that in, the, in, the, in this circle that thrusts out, which is not a semicircle, Three quarters of a circle, really, that the audience is coming around. These little pockets of people, you know, around the sides, mm-hmm. which are technically the worst seats, um, they are the people, those little triangles that sort of fit in here, they're the people that sort of provide the thrust. And when you get rid of them and, and build the stage out there, then you just have this sort of gentle thing. And you, you just, I mean, the word thrust has energy. The word apron has no energy, and it's probably not a coincidence. Uh, no one wants to play on an apron, and um, so um, there you are. And I used to study these people in, in the House of Blue Leaves. Swoosey had a ten-minute monologue, admittedly in the second act, and they had gotten to see her quite well. But she delivered it, you know, all like Judy Garland sitting on the edge of the stage all the way down front, and I thought, well, now these people are surely going to walk out. <laughs> and uh, nothing. They were just happy as could be. And I watched their faces every night, which was easy to do, because they were looking back this way. Uh, and uh, it was direct address, so, you know, once or twice during the speech, she looked over her shoulder and casually referred to them. But just goes out of the room real quickly when the seat's on the road. And... Uh, that's uh, that's very and so that's a tough demand playing that house. Uh, Have you found much difference in your audiences from here in Chicago? <clears throat> yeah, but I think that's a function of subscription and not subscription as much. Now, what are your plans for both Vivian Bowman and the new house? Are you, are you planning to do more experimental stuff downstairs, or you just? depending on the needs of the play. Yeah, it's really about the needs of the play. And the easiest way to say this is um, it would probably be kind of silly to do the lower depths in the Mitzi Newhouse, even though it would work. It would be cramped. Um, and it would be silly to do Endgame, which is one of the great plays of the century in, in the Beaumont. So it's not about how established the play is or how good the play is, but there are 
you know, Ham sits in his throne in Endgame for 90 minutes. Well, it would look silly. I think Speed the Plow would look silly in the Beaumont. Because I don't have enough imagination to move the actors around very much. So they would sort of sit and talk, and it wouldn't really come alive. So whether the play... We have a lot of new musical projects in the works, and several new plays. And... Uh, one of the, I mean, the other nice things about subscription is that you don't, you're never worried about the package. You're never creating a season. You only have to work six months yeah. ahead of time. And so you're never trying to balance the Shakespeare with the new Langford Wilson, for instance. You, you just don't worry about that. Those things tend to fall into place. Because mm-hmm. uh, I don't think there's a producer in this country of a, of a subscription season who really cares about all five plays. I never cared about all five plays. I would talk myself into carrying, yeah. but ultimately there was that last slot you had to fill. And <coughs> economics told you it was yeah. an eight-character play, and the rest of the season told you it was a comedy. And the rest of the season told you it wasn't a 20th century work. And then you picked it statistically rather than it was something that you had to produce. Sometimes a big... Yeah. And the audience yeah. smells that. They yeah. don't know. They smell why you did the play, no matter how much you protest. Have you thought of building an acting company, or are you indeed with your company of people, with the actors that you're working with? Well, I don't know. What do you guys think? Should there be an acting company? This is going to be a yes-no question. How many people think there should be a... How many people think yes? Hands? Permanent acting company? How many are undecided? I think that... uh, um, This... Yeah, I think that it's very hard to go from Serafina to Speed the Plow with an acting <laughs> And um, I think there are also... I just hate to, to pass up the, some of the wonderful actors in this city who, who just simply won't commit to an acting They won't do it. And uh, they just won't do it, some actors. Uh, for whatever reasons. Uh, because they want to be Hollywood stars, because they have children. Because, uh, whatever reason, there are some. Now, we think that they're right or they're wrong, but the fact is they won't. I just want to say one thing, and then I'll say to you. Um, you know, if you think about the National Theater, which is by and large a closed company, I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen Rex Harrison work at the National Theater Company. I would have loved to have seen Rex Harrison's Prospero, for instance. And unless he decided to mount some star production of The Tempest on the West End, that was lost. Now, I know much was gained by having a company, but I, I hate to lose that. I'm sorry. Uh, just that uh, I was one of the stage managers of that original company, and that was a theater company, and it contributed enormously to the economics of economics, but Everything I've read about that company seems to support that. I don't know an actor who doesn't say that they'd love to play Juliet one night and the maid the next night, but actually no one wants to play the maid. I mean, mean, let me put it this way. Actually, everyone would rather be playing Juliet both nights. uh, Or having the second night off. Or having the second night off. Some of them wouldn't mind playing. You were asking about an acting company. 
Uh, that's true. That's true. But even if it's an acting company, then you're back to the speed, the plow, Serafina problem. And, uh, you know, about play selection, I think that there, you know, a lot of plays that I really love that I'm not terribly interested in producing um, for the simple, for a couple reasons. One is because I don't understand how to produce them. Uh, I think Chris Durang is just the most easy example for me. I think Chris is a great, great writer. I love watching productions of his plays, but I don't know how they get from the page to the stage. I have no idea. Uh, not because they're difficult, but I have no take on his plays. So I couldn't be any help to him personally. So that's one reason why you wouldn't do a play that you thought was great. Another is that there's certain plays that we just can't bring anything different to, that there are 20 theaters around this city who can cast it as well as we can cast it, design it as well as we can design it, advertise it, do all those things. So they say, well, we're not bringing anything special. And as long as that writer is being produced, because of course you're bringing something special if the man or woman can't get arrested, then you're bringing a production. Uh, but if that's a writer who's, who's gotten offer from the public and from Wind Meadow and from blah, 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 and Circle Rep, uh, you know, you'd... so there's that. So institutionally, that is one of the things that you feel about Lincoln Center is that you want to be able to do something that nobody else can do. Not that they can't do, but that they aren't doing. Aren't doing. Or maybe they could, but we also could bring something special. I don't claim exclusivity no. in any sense. What do you what do you go on? What are your goals as a director? <laughs> um, I don't. Jeez, I about that. Well, um, you need some help. <laughs> I don't know. I I would. I mean, I would like to get back to directing large cast plays, which I used to do, but I don't have time to do anything. I mean, one goal would simply to be a director. You know, and have some time to think about things and uh, go study and do all those things you do when you're young, you know. You go and read everything that the guy ever wrote and everything that was ever written about the guy. And you travel and you think and you read five novels that seem to be related to this and 20 other books that seem to be written. You know, you so have no time to do that when you're producing. Well, that, so more of your time is being taken up with producing rather than directing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do David's plays because I don't need to do any homework on it. I'm David. I need to do homework on a play, but I don't need to study his life as, you know, he lives next to how, how do uh, How do you uh, divide up the job between you and Bernie? Is Bernie's job in the... We're very much partners. We have an official designation about uh, our official agreement is that we will consult on everything, but that he has final call if we disagree on certain areas of the theater. And I have final call if we disagree on other areas of the field. But uh, it would be wrong to say that I do the art and Bernie does the money, because if any of you know Bernie Gerstin, you know that he is a man of infinite soul and great love and uh, tremendous uh, integrity. And I don't mean that in a stuffy sense. I mean that in a sense of he's solid and he understands his principles and he is uh, as loving and generous a man as I have ever met. And I suspect that he fulfills the same purpose of this theater as he did for Joe for many years. And he's, he's, he's the nurturing one, you know. And, uh, and he's, our offices are adjacent, and I spend about half my day in his office. 
One more question, then we'll open up to everybody else here, because I'm sure there's been a lot of questions. Um, it does look at times as though you were producing up there for the commercial theater. You seem to move a great many things. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, we do. We do move things, and we're going to move more. Uh, one of the things I learned from Bernie is that Broadway is just a venue. I mean, you could also say that Broadway is a way of life, or Broadway is a commercial uh, approach. But uh, what I've learned from him is Broadway theaters are theaters that you can get on virtually no notice for an indefinite lease, and usually at fairly reasonable rates, uh, uh, if uh, the theater owners are sympathetic to what you want to do. That's to say if you think there's anything in it for them. And so what the other thing that I've learned from him is you don't stop something that has life in it. It's wrong. You don't abandon a, a kid who's just learning to walk. Uh, if that young, struggling creation shows signs of life, you nurture. And for, that, for us, that means nurturing usually on a not-for-profit basis. When we moved Serafina from the 300-seat Mitzi Newhouse Theater to the um, Cork Theater, which is an 1,100-seat theater, we did it on this basis. It cost $700,000 to move. $100,000 was a donation. Uh, $300,000 was put up by us, Wayne Center Theater, Inc., and $300,000 was provided by the uh, theater owners on a Coupable but not returnable loan. You know what I mean by that? I mean that if the show generated profits, they would share in those profits, but if it didn't, we didn't owe them $300, right? So they would probably, they might get some of their money back, they might make profits. We, now the actual move, that's where the 700 was, the actual move was $450,000. We set aside $250,000 to underwrite that show for 10 weeks at a $25,000 underwriting. In other words, we expected to play 60% of capacity at the court. 60% of capacity, uh, that's 600 people. So we thought we could double on 300 people, in other words. We thought it was worth it to us, and with part of our mission, to, given the fact that what a great, great work this is, and if you haven't seen Serafina yet, I urge you to do it. It, is, it will really remind you of what it is all about. Um, uh, to... to it was worth it to have that many thousands of people, I don't know, 10, 20, 30,000 people, see the show, that it was worth a quarter of a million dollars to us. We were astonished when the show started selling out, and it is now playing at 101% capacity every week. Um, and we will continue to do that. It is directly counter to the notion of a regional theater or a subscription theater. It is directly counter to Mr. Brewstein's article in the New York Times last week. And I, you know, I'm a sort of friend and the major person in the American theater. But what he, of course, doesn't say in his article is if you are dedicated to rotating pieces through your theater, it guarantees several things. Uh, it virtually guarantees that the actors won't learn how to play it, because I think most actors don't learn how to play a play until about eight weeks in. If your run is only five weeks, you're just starting to break a sweat, and the race is over. Uh, so the actors don't really have a chance to grow, in my opinion. 
Um, the playwrights never make any money. I don't know what Bob pays at this theater. Somebody somewhere I suppose between five and ten thousand dollars a play. I'm pulling that number out of the air, but I think that's a normal not-for-profit theater number of that size. Uh, we, Bernie and I just think it's nuts in a city where there is an audience to not give these plays a long life. And uh, for 14, 16 weeks, you could see Anything Goes for $10. So I don't have any great qualms about charging $35 or whatever anything. Anything Goes may actually be up to 40 now. Or $35 to see Serafina. That's top ticket. The average ticket price for Serafina has been $21 since it opened in January. That's, of course, it's even cheaper at that than that up at the new house. Um, we will recoup our money on Serafina, and we may actually make a profit. We will obviously recoup our money on Speed the Cloud. But I think it's arrogant, stupid, and destructive to run a play by a great American writer with two established, brilliant actors and a promising newcomer in a play for eight weeks and then say, thank you very much, I'll see you later. I don't think you've supported that writer very well. I don't think you've supported those actors very well. And at the point at which, and this is not provable, at the point at which you suspect that any uh, management is choosing plays for their commercial value, then I think you know your eyebrows must raise violently and get out the typewriter and write a letter to the New York Times or write a letter to the chairman of the board or who, whomever you think if a sort of public trust is being abused. But the idea that Serafina is playing now for an indefinite period of time, the show may run for years, to me a sign of success of our theater, not a sign of uh, selling out. Uh, and I think the same thing is true of Speed the Clown. I think the same thing is true of Anything Goes. And this is, after all, a play that nobody was exactly fighting to do as we sit here in the Lindsay and Krauss room. You know, it's not as if Manny Eisenberg was fighting with us for the rights. Uh, so it was a very neglected play, in my opinion. And uh, it was, it's done a great service to... Uh, two brilliant American writers and a great American composer who is known to us mainly now as a supermarket composer. To restore those tunes to their original values, okay, and I'm not dating myself, but to, and to have closed it after 16 weeks, I think would have been criminal. Questions? We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. Believe in the ideas of the book. The book. Oh, there's a book in the play. That, I know, and that's the book. Yeah. yeah. In other words, so I'm thinking in the back of my head of, of, of what Mel Gusso's comments, where he makes an observation that he sees David is as cynical about that as he is about <coughs> the other. And uh, I gather that is completely, that's not true. I don't know whether that's true or not. I mean, does Shakespeare side with the fool or does Shakespeare side with King Lear? Shakespeare side with Edgar or does Shakespeare side with Edmund? And I think that one of the things that makes a play a play is that it's not an essay. It has that element of doubt. And that, to turn the argument on its head, anything that can be stated, I'm starting to slip into David here, so I might as well give him credit, a play that is, says something that is true or even noble, women are people too. Um, 
old people have feelings. AIDS is a terrible disease. These are important thoughts and they may serve even to, to right of the wrongs of homophobia and ageism and sexism. Um, they are not by definition, just because of their, their, their nobility, worthy subjects for a drama. So that what kicks it off into a drama is, is, is the questioning of it all. Is life tragic or is life absurd? And I don't want to compare David to Shakespeare, but I would compare his intentions to Shakespeare's. And that juxtaposition of whether it's the grave digger and Hamlet uh, is, a, is an astonishing one. And when we see it in a new play and we haven't studied the play and the play is not safe for us, and when you know we set out to do Hamlet, I'm, which some of you have probably been lucky enough to do, I haven't. Uh, you know, I'm sure we all dream of having the, the grave digger moment be truly shocking and tasteless even. And how would we feel if somebody were making jokes at a friend of our funeral, the funeral of our fathers or our most beloved friend, you know? So he's going to last poor York, I knew him well, and he's weeping, and the grave digger's making jokes about his best friend being dead. Well, that's gone a little bit sterile on us, no fault of Shakespeare. So I think it's, I mean, I think David was probably very happy with Mel's article. But that's good. <laughs> Got me. Um, there is a. I'm not even sure when it's from, but there's a. It's just an old song or a little lyric poem that has to do with farmers, and um, it means God help the working man. You know, it's hard to steer a plow through a field. And then it just sets off a whole bunch of associative images. I never asked David Webber. Some of you, I think I saw one. I can't remember that one. Something, some quote from the Bible. It's not from the Bible. It's that not. much I know. It's not. Um, <laughs> yes, over in the corner. Well, somebody suggested the other day, and I just thought I suggested to you. I like those, but more and more I find myself being interested in sort of the well-made play, you know, plays in two acts or three acts, and, you know, the discipline that they require, Gibson being probably the best at this. Uh, it's, it's quite wonderful to deal with rather than episodic play. We're all somehow, even though I'm not even sure of it, getting a little tired of episodic play. So, we'll check it out. Yeah. I, I, I gotta say, I think there's no comparison. I mean, this theater, this, the theater in this city is so much more diverse and so much more sophisticated uh, and so much more, I have to say, it's skilled most of the time that uh, I, I, I know it sounds like New York 
jingoism, but I, I really think it's the case. Um, uh, there's some wonderful work in Chicago, and there are great advantages to working in Chicago, the foremost among them being that you can't have a career there, so it's only about the work, and by the time you're 30, you've usually done 30 plays. And uh, there are, that's the good side of no long run, oh, you know, for okay. a young artist. Uh, it's great to do five plays in a year if you're in a situation where you can do that. But there's no payoff, and I'm not talking about an, uh, a financial one, although God knows there certainly isn't that. But there's no sort of emotional payoff to it. I find Chicagoans largely indifferent to the other. I know that's sort of heretical. And, I, and that indifference is healthy in a certain way. I mean, you come and you do a great play, and they go, that's fine, that's fine, so I'll see you next month. And you do a terrible play, and they say, well, that wasn't so good, I'll see you next month. You know, careers aren't made or broken. You know, that's the good side of not having your career made, is they don't break your career either. And you just keep working. On the contrary, the Speed Plow is the first good review I've ever gotten in the New York Times. That's true. It's the first good review David's ever gotten in the New York Times. Yeah, what do you think about that, or how do you go for it, or do you think about it? They do what they do, and we do what we do. And uh, as a producer, you can take certain precautions against it, $10 tickets being foremost among them. I think the theater is far too expensive in this city. Um, but, uh, you know, as Epictetus would say, you got to worry about the things you can worry about and not worry about the things you can't worry about. Okay. The uh, production stage manager, the producer, or uh, the director, or both? Uh, uh, the production manager, a great guy named Jeff Hamlin, usually sort of scouts them up and then matches because, them with uh, directors. My friend Wally Peterson. Oh, yeah. Yes. And Wally has, you know, anything Elliot Martin does, Wally is, if he's in town, yeah. free and available. Wally does it. Yeah. Well, we got the regular guy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And he, he, I remember years ago when they were doing Never Too Late, Wally so meticulously put down everything <coughs> worked so closely with the director, with Joe Gaddis, that when it went on the road, Wally became the director of it on the road. And I wondered if when it was chosen, when, when that person was chosen, to make sure he has a directing experience or uh, just very He has a little bit. Uh, I'm a wonderful stage manager uh, a guy named Tom Kelly who worked at the Belmont and Jules and Herb uh -huh. and, uh, uh, But mm, no, I don't know what I'm going to do about the new speed plow company. The actors signed for six months, which I thought was pretty good, but they're going to leave after six months. And I assume the next batch will leave after six months. And Knock on wood, there'll be one more batch after that down the road. And I don't know what I'll do. You know, I just want to add something to me because I went to a few of them and I took over uh, the Lincoln Super Hunter. I remember there for years. And they built that thing acoustically, and, and the stage, you know, we had a big round table in the back. They all had space in the back, and there it was useless until the crust was built out. And I found that yeah. No, it was a mess, but then uh, so were the, some of the other buildings up there, too. And they spent a great deal of money, if you remember. On Avery Fisher, it was remodeled twice. Yes. 
They did a lot on all the others, but they didn't yeah, do much. Sadly, that that was done during a period of great building in this country, and it's not the only one. No. The Melziner egg was laid all over this country. But to defend Joe, he didn't want to do that thing that way. They wanted the multi-purpose theater. They wanted to serve everything, and ended up with something that uh, wasn't going to work at all. What's in the back now? Well, sort of the rest of that shit is up there, and a lot of open space. But no one acts up there. It's really nothing but too small there. Yes. 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 Know about philosophy on the city, your first uh, desire was to serve play as a director, I think. How you balance um, that desire with uh, a need as an and brings his spirit with him. Um, so I don't, I stop trying to worry about that. And if there's ever a moment that I, that looks like a real moment that I do, I, I know I'm going to have to cut it. Because it's an interesting moment rather than a truthful moment. Always. So I don't, I mean, I believe that it is interpretive in the most literal sense of that. You interpret from a bunch of words on a page. Yes, yes, thank you, no, 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 thank you, no, really, thank you, no, thank you. To an action. Kissing somebody's ass. Cementing a deal happens to be the action in that particular moment of the play. And uh, so, as we all know, the text has nothing to do with the play. I mean, it has everything and nothing to do with the play. The great example of this is the end of Cherry Orchard, of course. Wimopakin is proposing the varia, and the lines are cold out. Yep, it sure is cold out. Where are you off to? Oh, Karkov. Yep, probably cold over there, too. Yep. Pause. Sure is cold. Yep. Hmm. A lot of frost out there. Hmm. Oh, uh, Yemelai Alexeyevich, someone calls off stage and he walks off stage. And in all those yups, calls out, two people's hearts have just been broken, right? So you can't direct the text. So the process of interpretation is, is interpreting all those words that function on the surface into, you know, living truthfully under imaginary circumstances and acting and action. So that's what I do. And to me, it's, it's a lot like, uh, you know, looking at a carpenter's plans and trying to imagine what the house looks like. Okay, I can just follow for a second. I guess maybe to be more specific, if, say, for example, when you're making that choice of, of when that action is, if you have a different action in mind, say, than David, is it your responsibility to go with this idea? Yes. Do you think it is? Yeah. I just trust him because he understands what actions are. You know, this is not a sort of dilettante. He understands it. And although he may not have known it consciously when he wrote the scene, he certainly knew it subconsciously, and he is capable of removing himself out of the scene enough to say, she's not seducing him here, she is laying it on the line. And there's a difference. That's her job in the scene, to lay it on the line. And how she lays it on the line, 
I think David and I would agree is the actor's job, within reason. I mean, you, you can edit that, but, you know, uh, everybody's going to do that differently, and that's what comes down to casting, right? Joey cementing a deal is different than Bill Hurts cementing a deal. They're just different people, and they're going to do it in a different way. I'd love to see Bill play the part, actually. It would be magnificent. Yeah. But obviously, he's going to be very different. But the action will remain the same, to cement the deal, to break bad news. That's his job in the scene, is to break bad news. Not to apologize, to break bad news. And yes, I will go with David. Or I'll try and bring him around to my point of view. But, but, I, but, but if we have, you know, a, a, a true disagreement, I will, I will go, I will certainly try it. And unless it seems hideously wrong to me, we'll stick with it and try and make it work. Greg, in that context, how, how has working with David his place, his language, with so much underneath the language, uh, affected you, changed you, taught you as a director of other games? I think the principle always applies, and, uh, and uh, the, the thing with a new play is to not get, as we were talking about earlier, either cut happy or to become the assistant playwright. You know, you say, well, the through line of this play is to pass the torch. Except one scene seems to not be about passing the torch. So your first impulse is to say, well, let's lose that scene, you know, or rewrite that scene so it's a part of the general pattern of passing the torch. But my impulse now is to go back and say, well, maybe passing the torch isn't uh, the right thing. Maybe the through line of the play is to bid a fond farewell, which is similar but just different enough so that it will incorporate this one scene that you couldn't get to fit in the pattern. Say you read the play through again a couple times, I see this is a story of a man bidding a fond farewell. And that works better, or that doesn't work. Actually, now five scenes don't fit into the pattern of the play. So you try out another one. And if you're left with passing the torch and the one scene doesn't work, that's the point where I would go back to the writer and say, if I got this correctly, this is a play about passing a torch. What the hell is this scene doing in here? And the playwright may say something like, this is a moment of looking back. And that's part of passing the torch. It's a moment of reflection. I go, oh, I see. It's what throws the next scene into relief. Or I might go, give me a goddamn break. The writing here is beautiful, but put it in some other play. <coughs> I would say that in a very polite way, of course. <laughs> Any other questions? Any answers? Jim? Um, what was the name of that? Stanislavski rehearses the final years. It's published by the same people who, who publish, uh, you know, creating a character and making a scene. I want to celebrate Stanislavski books. Well, no, I, I just about that book. You said we rehearsed in the manner that well, what Stanislavski did, in the, to reduce a 300-page book to three sentences, is to say that actions are not about uh, sense memory, with all due respect to our neighbors, and uh, that uh, the, the 
because they're, for the simple and practical, not because it's morally repugnant, but because you simply can't call on it. You're out in the middle of the scene, and sometimes your mother's funeral is just simply not available to you. And that, and that really what uh, acting a play is for an actor is breaking down into a bunch of actions which are uh, immediately doable without any emotional preparation, um, uh, have to do with the other person on stage as opposed to you, and fun to do. Right? And those are the three criteria for, for a school of physical actions. Physical being not quite literal, but physical in the sense of immediately doable. So that what you uh, you wouldn't be able to change the world right now, right? You might say, "Well, my action in the scene is to change the world." Well, I I dare any of you to stand up and change the world, but any one of you right now could take the floor if you chose to, right? With no preparation, you could simply stand up and take the floor. Any one of you could put me in my place, right? You wouldn't need emotional preparation for that. You just stand up and say, "Who the fuck are you to come down here and blah 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 blah?" Right? And you'd be putting me in my place, right? And that's the essence of this book. And what it does, at the point of all acting techniques, is to set you free, right? But in the case of both of those, your attention would be outside, not inside. Taking the floor would involve all of us here. You couldn't take the floor if anyone else was fighting for the floor, right? You couldn't put me in my place unless you were sure that it was me who was being put in my place, right? There's no good job in looking inward. I'm not scornful of the actor's studio in any way. I have great regard for the actors who come out of that. Um, I'm just saying it's not the technique that we've used. So then in Glengarry, for instance, I'll make this perjury. At the end of the... Do you know Glengarry? Yes? No? A guy comes back, he kicks out of a contract, and the second act he comes back, he says, my wife says I can't do this, right? Now, on the surface, what he's saying is, Jimmy, 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 I need you to do this. Underneath the surface, you see that what he's doing really is finishing up a sale. What that wasn't much fun, what, what broke down in the criteria there is it wasn't much fun. To make a sale is like a little abstract, right? But what we decided the action was was to prevent a friend from making a tragic mistake. That was the action of that scene for John Antonio. And then what the technique further says is that you, in this, the essence of the scene, what David might call this, is, uh, is you can do improv based on improv not based on the text, but improv based on the essence. So that uh, uh, Porter and I give us any situation. I'm a, I've just been uh, offered a job. All Porter has to do is pretend. It doesn't have actually have to have happened. He just has to be able to imagine it. That this job would be a tragic mistake for me. And we could immediately begin an improv. And if the stakes are high enough, he'll do anything to prevent me from taking that job. He'll cajole me. He'll reason with me. And if push comes to shove, he'll intimidate me, he'll bully me, he'll threaten me, he'll insult me. And if absolutely necessary, he will stop me from walking out of the room to go sign the contract. Right? And that's how that works. Then he'll go out and sign the contract himself? <laughs> well, you don't have any control over what the other person does. You just have control over your action. Yeah. Right? And indeed, Joey, the guy, does kick out on Joe. 
and the contrast. But what allowed him to play that 10-minute scene with such enormous variety was one moment he would be controlled, and the next minute he'd be saying, you stupid shit, right? Whatever seemed to be necessary, and what seemed to be necessary came from the other actor, not from his idea of how the performance should be given. So his attention was always on Lane Smith, or always on Chuck Stransky, second to second. Is he going with him? Great, great, great. Is he drifting away? Okay, well, then I've got to stay with him. And that's what it comes down to. And this works for any playwright. Works for Shakespeare and Sophocles, just the way it works for Chekhov. We're sorry, but this question was inaudible. It was a decision. They knew each other and uh, had worked together before. And uh, so they paired up in early dance rehearsals. Uh, the eight dancers just broke up. And Michael Smith and the choreographer didn't particularly care how the dancers broke up. I think he said, you know, if you've got a favorite partner in this room, please, just do it. And then he kept those couples together in the ensemble throughout the dance. When I saw it in a dress rehearsal, I freaked, uh, because it is the policy of this theater that unless the play is about a racial question, that the casting will be colorblind. So uh, I went to the choreographer and said, break them up. Uh, it looks like a statement, and I don't, and I hate it. And uh, the dancers came to me and begged me to allow it to be danced together. That it hadn't occurred to them that it was racist, that they were best friends, <laughs> that they loved being dancing partners. I said, well, I understand that, but there's also something that's being communicated to the audience, and I'm not sure I can do it. So there was a, there was a, that was a tough, tough, tough decision. And I went, I, I backed the actors rather than an abstract idea. It was a tough call to We auditioned that play colorblind, and uh, had we not cast Patty LuPone, the, the, the second choice was a black woman. And uh, I, I would not be surprised at some point during the incarnation of Anything Goes to see black principals in that show with no attempt to explain. You want to get your question in? Sure, I was just wondering the physical distance that's been thought. Yeah. I was just wondering what I wondered about the development. All the good stuff is mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all the actors. David didn't. No, he, David never has written a stage direction, ever, except he exits or he enters. And, uh, and, uh, I don't, my, my memory is that everything was them. And none of it was mine. Fantastic. <clears throat> okay, we're at our stopping point here. We have to get out. But thank you very much. Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Theatrical Union celebrating five decades of uniting empowering and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. Visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.